0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb,
0: and I'm Julie Douglas.
1: Julie, I know I'm I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but but I, I just I, I always feel like violence on our public transportation systems mm-hmm. would be a lot more tolerable if these guys were fighting with swords.
0: So, if you think that if we all had scabbards. On uh, on the well, system. Well, I'm, that... I'm
1: not arguing for everyone to have a sword necessarily. I'm I'm not saying a sword-toting populace is a is a safe populace or anything to to, to that extent. I'm just saying that like some dude shoots another dude at mm-hmm. the train station, mm-hmm. it's it's this huge panic thing. But if two dudes are sword fighting, mm-hmm. I mean, you're gonna kind of take note. You're gonna watch. You're gonna hopefully back up. But I just see what you're saying. There's something stylish. There's something classy. There's something exhilarating about the the about a good sword fight. Or I least- mean, you
0: make it sound like we live in Paris, and it, someone's <laughs> just going, "Oh uh, God!"
1: That's what I'm saying. It would be—I mean—that's how I imagine, uh, you know, how it goes in Paris. It's just you know random yeah. duels breaking out on the subways.
0: Some I mean, of our French listeners, if you're out there, just if you could confirm that, would be great. Yeah, and then yeah. you
1: know, Europe is just uh, lousy with 400-year-old uh, immortals trying to cut each other's heads off. We, yeah. we know that from watching the TV. Yeah. But and, and of course, having watched the TV, having mm-hmm. watched movies, occasionally we do get to see a great sword fight. And there is for my money nothing better. Uh do do you have any in mind? Is there is there a oh, particular yeah, sword yeah. fight that sticks out to you? What?
0: I have a couple. Um the first one is Princess Bride.
1: Ooh, that does have some good sword fight. Uh,
0: yeah, fighting. Inigo Montoya. Mm-hmm. He says the whole thing like uh hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, but they have to die. Yes, and and then they fight... actually have a great fight scene. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. some
1: really good swordmanship. And any fights, uh, you can fight both hands, right. right? they
0: both yeah. actually, uh, uh, Wesley and Inigo both, uh, well, it's kind of trickery, right? Because mm-hmm. it was edited, but they use the right and left hand. So it looks really <laughs> fancy. And then my all-time favorite, though, is Kill Bill Volume 1, the last uh, fight scene in which uh, I believe it is Oren Ishii, played by uh, Lucy Liu, uh-huh. fights the Bride. Uma Thurman and it is I mean I love the scene it's a gorgeous scene I mean she's just Uma Thurman's character has just slaughtered the crazy 88 this gang she's blood splattered she goes out into this courtyard in Tokyo where she meets her uh her enemy uh Oren and the snow is falling and it's just beautiful because the scene is uh, it's stark and it's full of honor mm-hmm. and um you know there's some exchanges that are really great and then of course, Lucy Liu's character gets completely decapitated. Well, not completely decapitated. I take that back. Her he- The top of her head gets deca- decapitated.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's like decapitation is such a hallmark of uh, of sword fights uh, in, in cinema. It's like after a yeah. while they, they realize, eh, we can't just go for the straight-up neck cut. We need to go for something a little more inventive. So you see the uh, top of the head, the, like the brain cut.
0: Yeah, which or, is really uh, disconcerting, I think. You know. Yeah, yeah. But it allows her to say this line, which okay. I love. She says, that really was a Hattori Hanzo sword. Which to me, that's what that scene is about, right? The power of the sword. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, um, you know, that also brings to mind. This was not one of my favorite sword fight films, but um, there was that uh, film *Equilibrium* years back. It was kind of a Matrixy. Type I have thing. not seen that. It had Christian Bale in it. Uh, Sean Bean, and uh, it's it's not the best film, but uh, the action. Some of the action was pretty slick. Uh, and uh, spoiler alert, but Tay Diggs gets his face cut off. Like straight, not Ooh. like not like peel, but like that straight up. We can't actually cut anybody's head off because it's not exciting enough mm-hmm. for modern cinema. So just like the front of his head is cut off, but but if I were to choose, I'm thinking
0: about that, so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm
1: sure you can find it on YouTube. So it's
0: like he he could have been in the bodies exhibit then because there's like a slice of his face. Yes, exactly. Okay. It's,
1: it's kind of like like the dudes who choreographed these and planned this out. They were like, by the bodies exhibit is their favorite place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Um. But, but in terms of like, just great sword fights, my, my two favorites are probably the, uh, the end fight scene between Macbeth and Macduff in Roman Polanski's adaptation. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, like, that one because it's just such a brutal drag out fight. Like, there's nothing like fancy and swashbuckly about it. It's, it's, uh, it's just two dudes, uh, going at it with this, this air of, uh, on one side, vengeance. Mm-hmm. And then the other side, uh, just, you know, backed against the wall. With nothing to lose. And, uh, and then, uh, the, the movie Rob Roy has a great scene between, uh, Archibald Cunningham, played by Tim Roth and Rob Roy, uh, played by Neeson. Uh, so those are, those are two great ones. Uh, Ridley Scott's The Duelist also is generally right up there on the top of everyone's list is having just a fantastic cinematic sword fight
0: so in case you guys are wondering uh, you know what do you think we're talking about today <laughs> <laughs> swords um how we romanticize them how they're a huge part of our culture mm-hmm. um what they're made of and the craftsmanship um you know just all sorts of different aspects of how this tool really um entered our society and forever changed the world and the course of the world
1: right and uh, and the word tool is is uh, essential here uh and I urge anyone to go back and listen to our uh, our podcast that we did on tool use and mm-hmm. the evolution of tool use because a lot of what we say there uh, really sums up um, or really gets to the heart of, of what's amazing about the sword—the idea that the sword—I mean—it's kind of a cliche from anything, where any kind of film where you've heard a, um, a master swordsman instructing the uh, the young uh, apprentice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, telling them about the sword—is the exten- is an extension of the human body. That the sword is part of your arm, and, and studies have shown neurologically this is the way um, humans and, and other animals conceptualize their tool use. That's, That's how right. it ends yeah. up making sense inside the human mind. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, at, its, at its very basis it is the augmentation of the human body with with something to perform a task in this case, a death uh dealing device
0: right and we've talked about this before too, like you know. We- uh you've brought it up. Okay. If you wear contacts, then are you still human, right? Because you're augmenting yourself. Right. And so we think about the sword and and when we think about it now, we think of it completely antiquated. It's been out of general use for at least two hundred years. Right. Um you know, it just in a very uh in a in a sportsman's like way. Um and yet here is this um this augmenting of ourselves back in the day. Because mm-hmm. at one point, really especially in the Middle Ages, almost all men had a sword, right? This was, this was very common to possess.
1: Yeah, if you could afford it, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But although at some point it really, you know, was affordable to a degree. I mean, maybe your sword would break and you would be killed. And if I, but um, you know, it's very possible that a peasant could have it, and certainly a king. So this was something that that uh, at one point in history unified a great many people.
1: So the origin of the sword is, is another one of those things that just kind of vanishes into prehistory when you mm-hmm. try and you know nail it down. Like the early, earliest blades were likely made out of bone, bits of stone. Eventually, uh, they're creating things out of uh, bronze. Um, we found uh, some really amazing uh, not and I say we I mean humans archaeologists not right not, not you right and, and i, I last uh, week have found uh, arsenic copper alloy swords inlaid with silver from roughly uh, uh 3,300 BC. Mm-hmm. So we've been really into it for a while. And and as far as the creation of the modern sword goes, it generally comes down to heat treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't make steel at room temperature. You have to get iron glowing with heat. You have to infuse it with carbon, then quench the resulting uh, material in a cooling liquid, where you get that you know the very cinematic scene of somebody thrusting the uh, the newly forged sword into the mm-hmm. into the water or into the snow or something. Um, and then there's you know there's layering. It's it's a very complicated uh, craft to create a a fine sword, and and some of these techniques have, have been lost over time, right? Or, um, or, or certainly, uh, uh, the the appreciation for it is is often uh, forgotten as uh, as human warfare moves on to different uh, uh, technologies.
0: Yeah, there's one Scottish uh, sword from the Middle Ages that I think is it's fascinating. Um, it is in the movie Reclaiming the Blade. Uh-huh. Uh, they feature it there. And um this sword was forged by by weaving six strands of iron together, and then the edge was um, made of steel uh-huh. and it made it incredibly strong. but the steel made it really like very uh, i mean lethal, right? because right. it could cut very well. But they were saying that forging this blade would have taken thousands of hammer blows struck just right in order to both strengthen the steel edge and maintain the degree of flexibility in the blade so Obviously, the person who is creating this, the, the blacksmith, is, is highly skilled at this. And, in fact, and we'll talk about this in a, a little bit, some swords, we, we can't even quite figure out how to replicate today.
1: Right. And, uh, and like you alluded to there, these things have to take a lot of stress. It's not just hacking into uh, you know, unarmed peasants with these things. It's, uh, it, they're they're going to hit wood. They're going to hit armor. They're going to hit bone. There's mm-hmm. going to uh, there's gonna be stress Ricocheting through the material or reverberating through the material mm-hmm. itself. Uh, so, uh, you have to make a, it, it, anyone could, could potentially make something and call it a sword. You could carve one out of kindling, but, uh, to, to make an instrument like this that is going to last, uh, in many cases for centuries and centuries, uh, it requires a great deal of skill. Uh, just a, another quick note though, a particularly interesting weapon I, I ran across in researching this. There's a Danish blade called a SEEK, uh, S-E-A-X. Okay. Um or perhaps it's a sex. I, I don't, <laughs> I may have the pronunciation there wrong, but I, I just can't bring Tell myself- Talk about this sex. I just can't b- bring myself to talk about, uh, Beowulf slaying Grendel with his sex. Um Yes, you can. Yeah, probably can. But, but at any rate, uh, Beowulf, uh, supposedly had one of these, it, uh, or would have. It's a very old, uh, blade. And, uh, the handle was actually made of, uh, something called usk, or usik, uh, which is, uh, mineralized walrus penis.
0: Of course. Yeah,
1: because the the thing is you don't want the handle to get slippery uh-huh. with all the blood that and the Grendel blood that's going everywhere. So uh so you want something that's uh that's gonna hold tight in your hand.
0: Well and I can't help thinking too that um although I don't think of as walruses as like overly masculine One with the big tusks? Yeah, but I don't think of them as being like, hey, I'm going to take you down, not like a tiger.
1: Yeah, I guess you don't see a lot of walrus tattoos. Right,
0: exactly. But we should.
1: That would be amazing. <laughs>
0: so, you know, my first thought was, okay, you're just transferring the power of the walrus to the to mm-hmm. the uh, handle. But perhaps that was just what was available. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just an aside, there's an amazing bit of street art in San Francisco. Walrus laser beam, giant walrus laser beams coming out of his eyes. It's great. If you Okay,
0: there there's a tattoo. Yeah, if you people. guys
1: see it, take a gaze at it. But the style of swords varies just throughout uh, the world. Um, like every cu- culture has their sort of slightly different take on mm-hmm. the uh the blade. Uh and you know, it depends on the time too. As warfare evolves, so does the sword. And we could devote a whole podcast to to just discussing that, but but just to to briefly mention some uh, some other models. Um there's, of course, the rapier, the slender, sharply pointed mm-hmm. sword that you see. Uh, you think uh, of
0: that more of like a gentleman's sword.
1: Yeah, the gentleman's sword, early modern Europe during the 16th, 17th centuries, um, used for thrusting mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, this is like, yeah, kind of a musketeer type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the samurai swords of Japan, which are highly uh, revered for their craftsmanship, uh, those mm-hmm. things are still around. The, the handles will often be replaced over time, but the blade itself often really uh, holds up well.
0: Yeah, I actually read somewhere, too, that... Um, Somewhere in England, the samurai swords fights have become somewhat common. Actually, what, it says really? in the U.K. Yeah. It said one one member of parliament says they happen every week in her home city, um, and the government actually moved to ban the manufacture, sale, or import of Japanese-style replica swords in 2008. This is in the U.K.? This is in the U.K., and okay. this is from an article from Slate.com okay. about uh, swords and nerds.
1: Well, I mean, on one hand, maybe it's just a sign, sign that the gathering is occurring, right? And-
0: well, you yeah, know. yeah. But,
1: uh, but the other, uh, I mean, these are not trained samurai. These are just like exactly. kids going out and hacking. They might as well be using Klingon blades. Which sometimes they do. But, um, but, but back to actual weapons. There's also the, uh, the Kanda uh which is an Indian double edged straight sword mm-hmm. that uh, that comes to a point really abruptly, especially to, if you're more familiar with looking at Western and East and more traditional Western and Eastern models of, of the sword. Uh this one is particularly interesting to look up. And it was used uh just throughout the region by like the Sikhs, the Marathas, the Jats. Uh, and then of course there's a, a sword that I, I've Found particularly uh, interesting to uh, to look into, and then of course it's like the great two-handed great sword, Mm -hmm. which uh, you'll recognize from medieval iconography. This just sword with a a really long handle that you would have to grip in two hands, okay, and uh, and just a really long blade, so that if the thing was standing next to the 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 man uh, wielding it, Mm -hmm. it would be about his height, okay. And uh, you you see this. this sort of myth emerges over time that this weapon is not a skilled weapon. That it, or or even if it is a skilled weapon, that it is a, a weapon of brute strength and brute power, and that there's not a martial art to it. Like obviously, like it, anyone can can look at a samurai sword and, and and look at some of the images of it, and you're like, yeah, there's there's definitely a martial art to that.
0: Well, and it's better documented too, right? Right,
1: yeah. right whereas uh yeah it's it's uh, to a certain extent it's less documented in um,
0: and you're talking about european martial arts here right
1: right these were used uh 14th 15th 16th century and even as this war began to gravitate more towards the to smaller weapons and thinner mm-hmm. weapons and change i mean initially these uh, these new soldiers they, they didn't have the resources uh, at their their fingertips. They weren't historians, so it was easy to say, "Oh well, you know, today we use this more skillful blade, and and uh, in the old days, ah, oh, they just lumbered around with these giant pieces of steel." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then even today, I've read some some interesting. Uh, criticism pointing out that uh, that a lot of this a you have like historians looking into blades and right. like if a historian picks up even an authentic sword mm-hmm. they're not they're not going to necessarily know what to do with it if they say it's heavy what does that mean this is like well, some 80 year old uh british dude right
0: right and especially the ones from the 18 or not the uh middle ages which are they're kind of rusted out looking mm-hmm. they look very crude so if you if you don't have an understanding of how they were used then you could sort of right. jump to the conclusion that You know, this is one step away from barbary.
1: Right, and then if you were if you were dealing, well, like so, you can't use the, you can't actually mess around with the real thing. So you're looking at a replica. The problem with replicas is that a lot of times they are they are trying to capture the look of the. Of the weapon, mm-hmm. but they end up uh, getting the weight all wrong and the balance in right. the weapon all wrong. And the balance in a sword is key. Like even like in a rapier, the idea is that the uh, the hilt is heavier than the sword mm-hmm. because it gives you balance. And these great two handed swords, you, you see, you often see um, a big ball on the end this mm-hmm. uh, this pommel, and that is a counterweight. Uh, that helps in leveraging the weapon. Yeah, and in, the momentum, I'm yeah. sure, too. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole there's a whole system of weights to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And when you really look back uh, at uh, texts from that age, people were writing books about how to fight with these things, it wasn't yeah. just like here is a big sword, go out and kill people with it. No, they were they they showed different techniques. There were different ways of doing it. There was a particular move with the uh, with the long sword called the, uh, and this is in. Um, in the German school of swordmanship, mm-hmm. the Mord strike or the Mordschlag, which is the murder strike uh. or the murder blow. And this would occur when you would you would actually turn the sword around, yeah. and then bash somebody in the face with that weighted pommel.
0: Oh man. yeah.
1: And there's not enough of that in movies. I tell No, you.
0: no. And see, you know, one of the reasons that this is the sort of information isn't sort of widespread and we don't, when we think of swords, we don't automatically start thinking about European martial arts is because these texts have been sitting around in musty libraries mm-hmm. and um, sort of lost their way, particularly in the, uh, in Europe when, you know, gunpowder uh, came into play. People began to use uh, less and less swords, mm-hmm. and then it was taken up as a gentleman's sport. So all of a sudden, you have the sword changing from maybe a heavy instrument or a super long blade to becoming very uniform and light, mm-hmm. um, so that you could, you know, have some sort of duel, which really wasn't meant to end in death. Right? That was right. just about you know, defending your honor. Well,
1: we sometimes. There was there was definitely some death involved. Well, there, there you know, yeah certainly
0: there there are many instances, but mainly
1: you just want that 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 snazzy scar on your face, right? You can yeah.
0: be like, man, I'm, I, I, yeah, that's right, I got in a duel. Um, but the point is there is that there's some information that was that just didn't transition from the Middle Ages, from the 14th century to 18th century, um, and so we began to think of swords in a very different way.
1: Uh, one last note on the, the weight of medieval swords. I have a quote here from the late uh, Ewart uh, Oakshalt. Who was a um, who wrote the book Sword uh, in Hand, and he was a a leading expert on medieval swords. He said uh, medieval swords are neither unwieldably heavy nor uh, all alike. The average weight of any one of normal size is between 2.5 pounds and 3.5 pounds. That's right. Yeah. Even the big hands and a half war swords rarely weighed more than 4.5 pounds. Uh, such weights to men who were trained to use the sword from the age of seven and who had been uh, tough specimens to survive that age were by no means too great to be too practical. So, uh, Okay, so yeah. that's
0: like the weight I, I'd use in my my step aerobics class if I went to a step aerobics class, right? Yes. I mean, you know, in one hand, so yeah, thank, no big deal.
1: Thankfully, they do not let you bring swords to the Y, right?
0: Uh, well, I did tell you about the belly dancing class. Oh. Actually, she never brought a sword. She just would talk about, um, when she was belly dancing. Oh, that's like, right.
1: Because the, the belly dancers would do that thing where they, they have the sword balanced on their head and, uh, Yeah,
0: and they bounce it on their stomach. It's, it's pretty exciting stuff. So it she is. would always say to the classes if we all had, you know, swords at home. Okay. So this is the part where you just kind of jut up your hip <laughs> and so on and so forth. Um, one of the things I did want to mention too. Is this the skill that you needed in order to wield this instrument? Um, Because think about it. In this case, you are attacking and defending yourself at the same time. Right. And to me, it's like this physical game of chess because you have to try to figure out what your opponent is doing. So every attack contains a defense and every defense contains a counterattack. Right. So, because
1: you attack, you open yourself up potentially for uh, an attack from either the person you're dealing with mm-hmm. or some other individual on the field of battle.
0: Yeah. And that's why there were so many manuals that were mm-hmm. instructing people. And it was, I kind of think of it now too. If you, you get a Samsung, I don't know, some sort of electrical device and then you get a user's manual with it. I like to imagine right. that, you know, back in the day, you got your sword and a little user's manual to say, this is the best use of, um, of, uh, the sword, given how it's weighted and how your body should be an extension of it. Uh-huh. You know, this is how you should lunge.
1: Um, I will try, but, uh, I will try and make sure that I mention this on a blog post or, uh, just on the, um, Facebook page for stuff to blow your mind. Uh, but if anyone wants to see some images of like the, the long sword, yeah, um, um uh, user manual, if you will, um, there's an excellent resource called, uh, in, it was written in 1459 by Hans Talhoffer called "Alta Amateur und Ringkunst. And, uh,
0: nice, nice.
1: and the the whole text is available online and you can, you can browse through it and see how to use a longsword, a dagger, a spear, a poleaxe, and even wrestle. So.
0: Alright. Unarmed
1: and armed combat. So.
0: Very cool.
1: All uh, hands has you covered.
0: Um, I did want to mention too, uh, in skill and, and, uh, cultural use of, of swords, kendo, Japanese swordsmanship. Yes. Very cool. They follow a very rigid rules that are meant to instill as much integrity into dueling as possible. For instance, when you're about to attack your opponent, you actually make a thumping sound with your foot to, to sort of signify like, hey, I'm about to, to to rip you a new one.
1: Oh yeah, and and speaking of Japanese swordsmanship, I should I would I would be remiss if I did not mention that one of the great sword fighters of all time. Zoro? Uh, not Zaro, uh, was uh, uh, Miyamoto Musashi, uh, author of the Book of Five Rings, sixteenth seventeenth centuries, Ronin swordsman. Uh, his reputation is just uh, right up there at the top of of real life dudes, and you know probably fictional dudes too.
0: Yeah, and it turns out there are a lot of these real life dudes.
1: Magical weapons. This is something that uh, that I've I've just I found really cool for uh, a number of years since I, I first uh, discovered it, and that is that. Uh, um, you you have these blades, these mm-hmm. swords that are not just made from iron. They're made from uh, meteoric iron. They are right. f- they are made from iron that fell from the sky <laughs> in the form of a meteorite mm-hmm. or multiple meteorites. Because generally, uh, uh, in some cases, you might have enough uh, uh, meteoric iron there to make to forge one sword. But generally, you're having to poke around. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, today. We have uh, Terry Pratchett, the author of the Discworld novels. He actually has a, a sword uh, made from such iron, uh, and it's you know very much a novelty. It's you know it's a cool thing to have. In the there was a time though before uh, uh, smelting technology really took hold uh, back in the Bronze Age, before mining allowed us to really harvest iron ore. Uh, this was one of the few sources of, uh, of of iron, and that was you know you'd have to go out like in the desert mm-hmm. somewhere where like black bits of stone that have fallen from the sky will show up uh, really easily. somebody would gather these together they'd get sold sold here and there and then they'd wind up in the hands of a, a metal worker and mm-hmm. a swordsman and uh, you would have uh, these just fantastic weapons the uh, ancient Egyptians called it black copper and it was generally just considered you know the the uh the best metal to have the best weapon to have uh, okay. and it would and it would often end up being sort of ceremonial because the dudes that have the can afford the best right. swords, or can also probably afford not to have to use them, mm-hmm. right? The seventh century caliphs um, of the Middle East were said to uh, have brandished these weapons, and uh, and supposedly such iconic figures as Attila the Hun and Tamerlane also uh, wielded these cosmic blades against their enemies. Um, like I say, that's that's just blows my mind there. Just thinking about these these ancient dudes carrying around these blades uh, forged from the heavens, and you can imagine. I mean it. Oh, yeah. can you imagine I mean, how you get tales of magical weapons just off of that.
0: I mean, can you imagine an eBay back then that would have been very sought after of course it is today too. but um it makes me think about how when we when we talk about ancient swords that we think about the material and the mm-hmm. techniques as being primitive by today's technological standards. but in fact, um their techniques were really advanced and what I'm talking about here is a a sword possibly the question mark right? Forged out of nanotechnology.
1: Yes, the Damascus blade. Uh, these are sabers from uh, Damascus, now known as Syria, and they date back uh, generally around 900 AD. And they were just considered the the ultimate weapon to mm-hmm. uh, to have uh, at hand because they were strong, but they were and they were sharp and they were but they were light and they could supposedly cleave a, a silk scarf in two as it was floating to the ground. It could. I think there are tales too that it could cut through a not only the night. Uh, but riding a horse, but the horse is well, and all the armor and the saddle in right. just one swoop, right?
0: Yeah, there's a, a saying, something like, cleaved man and horse together and all armor in twain.
1: That was on the yeah, the ad, on the packaging for it <laughs> That's you, right, uh, yeah. you would buy it at the, the sword store.
0: And there are some people who think that the, the steel for the blade actually originated in India, um, but because it was exported to Europe through Damascus, it was assumed to be its source.
1: Yeah, it comes down to these uh, woots cakes, right?
0: Yeah, which, which sounds, sounds delicious. It sounds delicious.
1: Yeah, like it's you know nice and oatmeal on the outside, mm-hmm. and then like some creamy gooiness. I was the about middle. to say a surprise in the middle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, in a way there was a surprise in the middle there because was these uh, these cakes had um, had iron uh, in them, mm-hmm. and with uh, apparently just just a night a perfect array of impurities. That uh, that lent itself uh, exceedingly well to the creation of these these magnificent swords. Right. That being said, the guys hauling these wootz cakes out of the ground, they didn't rec- necessarily recognize what was great about them. They just mm-hmm. realized that they were uh, they they could sell these for some some good coin. And uh, the, the the metal workers realized that these could be used really well to create something. But now, uh, modern scientists have been looking at the Damascus blade, in particular, they've been looking at. Uh, one that dates back to uh, I believe the seventeenth century, and uh, you know studying it uh, and trying to figure out exactly what made it awesome right, and, it has uh, a
0: really high har- carbon content right
1: on it. so they uh, they dissolved part of the weapon uh, actually in hydrochloric acid and studied it under an electron microscope and they found that the steel there contained these carbon nanotubes, and these are like each one of these is just slightly larger than a nanometer we 've covered these before these are the the carbon nanotubes is kind of the uh, you know, one of the, the golden childs of nanotechnology, right. the idea that you're, you're taking these little minuscule carbon tubes and, uh, and if you, if you build something out of them, then the material is strong and flexible. It's the thing that people talk yeah. about building, sp- uh, space elevators out of and, right. and you know, super- it's a hundred
0: times stronger yeah. than steel and much lighter.
1: Yeah. And the researchers also, uh, say that they, they discovered nanoscale wires of cementite, mm-hmm. an extremely hard carbon iron compound. Um, yeah, it's
0: a carbon steel geometry. Yeah,
1: they were probably formed inside the nanotubes. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody's making an ancient uh, aliens or, you know, technology <laughs> of the ancients argument here to say that, uh, oh, well, they the Damascus swordsmiths of old uh, had nanotechnology. Well, not not exactly. They They didn't. They didn't know that they're not saying that they knew there was car there were carbon nanotubes in here no it was sort um, of a
0: fortuitous accident right yeah
1: and you see you see even earlier examples of this in uh, like stained glass and uh, in various uh, um, glass blowing techniques that would end up um, uh, using what we would later understand as nanotechnology to change their coloring mm-hmm. Um Because if you, um, you, and it's like we said before, if you change something at the smallest level, you can greatly increase the way a a substance behaves, its various properties, even chemical properties. The argument here is that is what is inadvertently going on uh, in the creation of these blades.
0: Yeah, and they were saying to you that, I mean, if you think about it this way, like the the edge of the blade would would almost be like it was uh, composed of tiny diamonds Mm -hmm. right and so that's why it's so effective in slicing um and there are also accounts of it being self-sharpening which again (laughs) we don't know whether or not uh, that was the case
1: now there were a number of people this uh uh, initial uh, study came out uh, a few years back and um and uh, even when it came out, there were a number of people that were also kind of doubtful. They were like, ah, I don't I don't think that this is nec- you're necessarily seeing what you think you're seeing. Mm-hmm. uh Or I think you're seeing something that is present in in most uh, steel, if you really looked at it. Uh, and uh, as far as I can tell, the um, there's no definitive word yet on exactly what the deal is with uh, Damascus uh, steel. Other than it's uh I mean, the, the craftsmanship is still uh, above reproach, but.
0: Right, and this is actually, again, this is the sort that they cannot replicate in terms of the high carbon content and its ability not to become brittle or break.
1: Right, yeah, the the recipe for it was lost uh, centuries ago, and... uh and since that uh, that time, uh, also the the wootz cakes were all used up for the most part. So
0: well, uh, you know, yeah. what do you expect? Put them out at a party; everybody's going to eat them. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about some fun with swords. How can I have fun with swords?
1: Well, uh, like you mentioned, you can. Uh, I mean, aside from dueling on the subway, uh, you can dance with them, of course. Yes. Um, uh, uh, and it, and I actually I love seeing uh, the sword dancing with the uh, with the belly dancers. That's uh, that's always frightening and and beautiful to behold because what if it falls off and it kills uh, somebody in the restaurant but uh, I know
0: what a bummer night
1: yeah but then there's also sword swallowing
0: yeah well and I was going to mention too that there there are Scottish sword dances too just in case oh, okay. um, presumably they perform them before the swordsman uses the blade to cut the haggis uh, do women, I made that, women uh, dance I made or the men up. dance the men do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're sword swallowing, and we actually have a really great article, "How Sword Swallowing Works," by Pop Stuffs Tracy Wilson. Ah, uh, you should check out. And that looks like it's a, it's just a sleight of hand trick, but it is not.
1: They're really sticking it down they their throats. Really putting no. it in
0: their GI tract.
1: So there you have it, the sword.
0: Sword. Yeah. Swords.
1: Some of the things that uh, that make them amazing. Uh, some of the things that uh, you might not have known about how they're made and how they are used. By skilled hands. All right. So, speaking of skilled hands, let's get some hands on some listener mail.
0: Are you talking about a robot? Yes. Yeah. Skilled hands. That sounded kind of creepy. They're skilled hands, yeah. There you go. Look how
1: look how well he handles
0: things. I haven't received a bag massage from our robot. That would be weird.
1: All right, here's one from Russ. Russ writes in, Dear Robert and Julie, I wanted to thank you both for the great work you do on your podcast. You guys have gotten me through many boring hours on the treadmill with topics that are far more uh, mind-bending and thought-provoking than just staring at a wall or a muted TV high praise. <laughs> your uh, your podcast is really great. Uh, I recently just listened to the podcast about the future of stink, and ironically enough, I saw something the next day in a hotel lounge in Serbia while I was on, I was on a business trip, and I thought you might find it interesting. It's called an aroma brand, and it blows a certain type of smell into the lounge. Um, the lounge has a kind of homey-type feel as a result of the smell, and it had a type of wood-burning fireplace, apple pie-baking, incense smell to it. It made me feel more at home there, oddly enough, since is just a, about as far from my home as possible, since uh, I'm from Chicago. But I'm guessing that's what the benefit of aroma brand is meant to be. At any rate, it was definitely better than the smell of David Beckham's sweaty sock. Uh, thanks again for doing such a great podcast, and happy holidays to you both. Because uh, huh. we were—he sent this, and uh, we were reading it during the holidays. Yeah,
0: yeah. Thank you so much for that. And. Um yeah, it, for for anybody who missed that podcast about um, about smell, we we actually had a sample of David mole, uh, David David molecule David Beckham's foot molecules, uh-huh. which smelled incredibly uh, like cheese. Cheesy, yeah, and it confused me because I was sort of attracted to it, but then I because I thought it was cheese, and then I was completely repulsed. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of feelings to work out after that podcast.
1: Yeah, and, and certainly that's uh, that's one of the things we talked about in the podcast. Just about how many, how much goes into our uh, our interpretation of smell, mm-hmm. whether it's a good smell or a bad smell, and how our memory uh, wraps around it. So, yeah, there you go. But what do you guys have to share with us? Uh, do you have something you want to share about swords? What is your favorite sword fight in cinematic history? What is your favorite sword-related kill in cinematic history? Let us know. We'd love to hear about it. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, we're Stuff to Blow the Mind. And uh, on Twitter, you can you can find us by searching for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But our handle is Blow the Mind, one word.
0: And you can always email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.